If you have a Bible, go ahead and open up to Leviticus 23. Leviticus 23. We are continuing our way in this chapter. We'll be picking up in verse 26 today. And we're getting close to the end of this chapter in Leviticus, which we've summed up with the words, thou shalt feast, right? It's this ongoing description of the feasts of Israel, uh, the many feasts of the people of God, uh, the special days when they gather and celebrate, because this is who God is. He's a God who calls and gathers his people to celebrate and feast. Now, last week, we looked at what is called the Feast of Trumpets. The Feast of Trumpets. And so on the first day of the seventh month, loud trumpet blasts were sounded, announcing that God is here and calling the people to come to him. What followed the trumpet blasts is a period that came to be known as the Days of Awe. Ten days of reverence and reflection as the people prepared for one of the most sacred days of the year, the Day of Atonement. And that is the day that we read about today. Leviticus 23, beginning in verse 26. Hear the word of the Lord. The Lord said to Moses, The tenth day of this seventh month is the day of atonement. Hold a sacred assembly and deny yourselves. Present a food offering to the Lord. Do not do any work on that day, because it is the day of atonement. When atonement is made for you, before the Lord your God. Those who do not deny themselves on that day must be cut off from their people. I will destroy from among their people anyone who does any work on that day. You shall do no work at all. This is to be a lasting ordinance for the generations to come wherever you live. It is a day of Sabbath rest for you. And you must deny yourselves from the evening of the ninth day of the month until the following evening. You are to observe your Sabbath. This is the word of God for the people of God. Amen. Amen. Let's pray. Oh Lord, we thank you for the gift of your word and for this call to gather and remember you. God, I pray that as we reflect on the words of your scripture together this morning, that you would sharpen our minds and soften our hearts, that we might know you and love you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. This day, the Day of Atonement, is set apart from all the other holy days of Israel that we've read about so far, because this one is actually not a feast day. This is a day of fasting. It's a day that the people are too, we heard reiterated multiple times, deny themselves. They were to deny themselves 
and do no work. And so after 10 days of solemn preparation following that trumpet blast on the first day of the month, uh, they arrive at this solemn fast day, the Day of Atonement. And so this Day of Atonement is a unique day among all the days in Leviticus 23, and it very uniquely reveals God to us and to his people. Uh, this was uh, the, the most sacred day on their calendar uh, throughout the Day of Atonement. It was sacred and necessary. And so what I want to do this morning as we reflect on the Day of Atonement is to ask the questions, what does the Day of Atonement say about us as God's people? Uh, what does it say about God, who God is, and what God wants for the world? Um, and, and see how this all comes together in the person of Jesus. And so, uh, beginning with this first question, what does the Day of Atonement say about us as God's people? The first thing we have to ask is, well, what is atonement? Right? What is atonement? It's, this is a word that we hear in pretty much no other context other than religious services, you know, reading the Bible, stuff like that. What does atonement mean? Well, very simply, it is right there in the Word. Atonement is at one meant. Atonement is at one meant. It is the process of being made one with God, with other people. The Day of Atonement was this, this sacred and holy day to the ancient people of Israel, but it's no less important and needed for us. Because, see, we live in a world that is torn apart. We, we live in a world that's coming apart all the time, sometimes literally by violence and war, but also we live inside of torn apart relationships. Sometimes there are massive fallings out with friends and family, but sometimes it's just the smallest comment, the smallest thing that dismisses and demeans and tears us apart from one another just a little bit. We're even a people torn apart within ourselves, right? We can feel that so often. We carry shame. We carry fear. We are bustling uh, little, you know, vehicles of chaos, right? Just in ourselves. That's who we are. We're restless no matter where we find ourselves. And, and all of these things, the, a world coming apart, is because we are ultimately torn apart from God, who is the source of life who's the, the, the foundation of all being, the ground of love itself. And sometimes we actively war against God through sin and rebellion, but other times we simply are unable to see God because of that thick, dense fog of darkness and evil that's around us every day. We live in a world that is torn apart and in desperate need of being put back together. A world in desperate need of being made one again. 
That's why atonement is so important. Because we need to be brought back together. Uh, Another word that maybe we do use more often is the word reconciliation. That which has been torn apart needs to be brought back together, reconciled. We live in a world that's torn apart. Now, there are a number of ways that we can respond to living in this torn apart world. Right? Some of us are overwhelmed by all of the chaos everywhere. And so we seek to self-soothe. We distract ourselves from that inner ache and the chaos around us. We, we turn to comfort foods. We, we go on spending sprees. We look to things like sex and entertainment, all kinds of self-serving desires. And, and none of these things, none of these coping strategies will actually make us one again. None of these things can actually work for our healing but we use them as, as a temporary cover, right? Like putting a Band-Aid on a gaping wound, right? These, these things don't heal us, but they might temporarily numb the pain. And so we turn to them again and again, following our own desires. Now, others of us might respond differently to the chaos of a torn-apart world. Rather than giving in to the chaos— Some seek to control it, right? You make rules. You make regulations. You you live a well-regimented life. Uh, You live by the law. We see the world falling apart, and so we got to put it back together ourselves, right? And we become hyper-religious, become legalistic, become judgmental, bossy, We tell everyone else what to do, right? You've seen that. Now, on the outside, this strategy might look a lot holier and and a lot better than the other one that just looks like someone's life falling apart. Um, But it is just as incapable of healing the world. It's just as incapable of putting anything back together again because because trying to control everything actually forgets that, that we ourselves are torn apart within. It's, it's the inside of us that's broken, just like the world around us. And therefore, we're not able to put things back together until we ourselves have been healed, until we ourselves have been put back together. Now, God knew that people tended to these extremes. On the one hand, self-indulgence, and on the other hand, self-reliance. God knew that people would, would try to atone for themselves in those ways. So what does he tell his people to do on the Day of Atonement? Well, two things that we just read. Deny yourselves and do no work. Deny yourselves and do no work. Don't give in to self-indulgence. This is a day of fasting. Don't try to fix it all yourself. It's a day of rest. He knew that we would, we would go one of those directions. And so he said, nope, 
Atonement does not look like that. Deny yourself. Do no work. Don't numb yourself to the ache. Stay awake to it so that you'll know when this healing has come. And don't try to control everything. Atonement will happen, but it will not be your doing. Now, for many of us, it's actually not an either-or thing, right? For many of us, uh, we seek both our own comfort and to control and judge everything around us, right? Right? It just makes me feel safe and, and happy, you know, stay nice and warm and cozy uh, on, on my couch while I point the finger at everyone else. All of this is proof that we have a desperate need for atonement, but we are utterly unable to bring it about. We desperately need atonement, but we cannot do it ourselves. So this is what the Day of Atonement says about us. We desperately need to be healed, but we're powerless to heal ourselves. So on the Day of Atonement, the people did not feast, they did not work, they took on a posture of openness, ready to receive the gracious gift of God's healing. It's the only way to find atonement, to be put back together again. Openness, receptivity. Now, what does this Day of Atonement say about God? What does it say about God, right? We, we're looking at all the things that didn't happen on the Day of Atonement, right? They, they denied themselves and they didn't work. But what did happen on the Day of Atonement, right? What, what occurred as the people fasted and, and waited? Well, as we look at, at this, what did happen, we actually see quite a bit about the heart of God. Uh, to see more of this, uh, we're going to have to flip back a few pages to Leviticus 16. Leviticus 16. There's actually a whole chapter that describes every detail of what happens on the Day of Atonement. I'd love to read the whole thing with you, but we'd be here for hours. So I'll just read a few pieces and, and, and touch on it. Uh, let's begin uh, in verse 3. Leviticus 16, verse 3 says, This is how Aaron is to enter the most holy place on the Day of Atonement. He must first bring a young bull for a sin offering and a ram for a burnt offering. He is to put on the sacred linen tunic with linen undergarments next to his body. He is to tie the linen sash around him and put on the linen turban. These are sacred garments. And so he must bathe himself with water before he puts them on. And then from the Israelite community, he's to take two male goats for a sin offering and a ram for a burnt offering. So this is a summary of, of what happens on the Day of Atonement. While the people of Israel fast and wait, Aaron, the high priest, is at work. He's up to something. And, and what he does... Uh, shows so much of God's heart. He, he takes uh, a couple of goats as a sin offering for the people of Israel, uh, and, and he takes a bull for his own sin offering as well. 
We're going to look at those in just a moment, but, but first I want to point something out that, that also shows us something of God. In Exodus 28, there's this very colorful description of the elaborate uh, robes and, and garments of the priests uh, in the Old Testament. Here's a picture uh, depicting something like what it would look like. Right? They wore robes of gold, blue, and purple, scarlet. There was fine linen that they wore. Uh, they, they had a, a golden uh, breastplate and other gold-covered pieces around them. On that breastplate, there were these fine gemstones that were set into it. I mean, in a single word, it's fancy, right? I mean, that's, that's not something you see every day. Uh, that's not something you saw every day back then either. You know, someone like this walks into a room, you know they're important, right? And you know that they carry some kind of authority. This is a priest. And so this is what they normally looked like, what they normally wore. But what did we just read, right? What does Aaron wear on the Day of Atonement? Put on a linen tunic. Linen undergarments, a linen sash, a linen turban, right? On the Day of Atonement, there are no blue robes. There are no bright sashes. There are no golden accessories or gemstones. On this day, the priest wore simple linen garments, simple linen clothes. On the Day of Atonement, the priest is dressed not as religious authority, but as a humble servant. He's dressed as a servant. And this is how atonement occurs. It's not uh, flashy demonstrations, but humble service. It's in humility and meekness that atonement will be accomplished. Uh, this, I think, may be one way of showing once more that it is not anything that people do that, that atones. Yes, the high priest is at work, but he is not the one driving. He is a humble servant. God is the one working atonement for God's people. And so as the, as the priest gets to work, what is it that he does? I mentioned at first he must bring a young bull for a sin offering. That's for himself, right? Before the community can be atoned for, he must be atoned for. Before they can be restored to God, the, the priest himself must be restored to God. And so he must present his own sin offering. Then, uh, from the Israelite community, he has to take two male goats for a sin offering and a ram for a burnt offering. These are for the people. These are for the people of Israel. And what is utterly unique and fascinating that, that we'll see here in a moment is there are two goats, not just one. Uh, and something very different happens with each one, which communicates something very deep. But what does he do with the bull and, and, and the goats for the sin offerings? Right? Most of the time, uh, a goat or a bull or some kind of sin offering would simply be put on the altar, uh, and that would be the offering. But on the Day of Atonement, 
It goes even deeper. It goes even deeper. And so if you look down uh, in verses 15 to 19, we get a more detailed description of what exactly it is that he does. So he shall then slaughter the goat for the sin offering, for the people, and take its blood behind the curtain and do with it as he did with the bull's blood. He shall sprinkle it on the atonement cover and in front of it. In this way, he will make atonement for the most holy place because of the uncleanness and rebellion of the Israelites, whatever their sins have been. He is to do the same for the tent of meeting, which is among them in the midst of their uncleanness. No one is to be in the tent of meeting from the time Aaron goes in to make atonement in the most holy place until he comes out, having made atonement for himself, his household, and the whole community of Israel. And so he's, he's not just at the, the altar making this sacrifice. He's going all over the place in this tent of meeting. Now, I, I want to say a couple of things uh, that is very clear from this passage that corrects some of our misunderstandings of what atonement is and I think how atonement occurs. Uh, many of us are accustomed to thinking about atonement, reconciliation, in terms of the law right? There is a wrong that has been done, right? Sin has been committed, and therefore uh, something's got to happen, right? There's, there's a punishment that must be paid, and so with this idea in mind, um, what has been interpreted is that, you know, God requires a punishment for sin, and so a goat has to be killed or a bull has to be slain and put upon the altar. And that's how many of us have come to think of atonement, have come to understand the whole Old Testament sacrificial system, how we have come to think of Christ. But here's the thing, that language was nowhere to be found in Leviticus 16. There is nothing being punished. What's happening in this? The problem being solved is uncleanness. The picture that we have here is not a goat being punished in people's place, but rather blood that is cleansing a dirty place. This is about cleansing. It's about washing. The, the sins of the people have, have accumulated, uh, not just in their lives, but also in the very place where they live. And so the Day of Atonement was a day of deep cleaning. It was a day whenever you, you know, didn't just do your usual sweep, uh, but you really got down on your knees and scrubbed. And we see this from the description that we've just read, right? Um, he goes into the most holy place. He makes his way out into the tent, uh, and, and he, he atones for each of these places. Now, maybe it's helpful to look at some, some images of what exactly is happening. Here's a picture of the tabernacle, uh, not a photo, a, you know, rendering of it. Uh, and I think what's most uh, notable here uh, is there are these concentric circles almost, 
right? You've got the outer gate uh, and the outer court uh, where you would go in. And that's where you have the, the primary altar. You can see it burning there. That's where the sacrifices would be made. But then as you journey further in, you've got the actual tent itself. Um, so you go from the, the outer part on to the inner part. And that's the tent itself, the, the, the inner sanctuary. But as you keep journeying, there's a veil. There's a curtain. Uh, and behind that curtain is what is known as the most holy place, sometimes called the holy of holies, the most holy place. And this is where uh, the, the Ark of the Covenant was kept, uh, this box with a, a, a golden lid on it and two cherubim sitting on top of it. Uh, the, it's this image of a throne. This is where God sits. This is where God is amidst the people. And no one was ever to go into this most holy place. It is God's realm alone. No one is to go in there except on the Day of Atonement. On this day of deep cleaning. And I think some of what this shows us is that God is interested in atoning deeply. God is interested in the depths of our hearts, right? The, the tabernacle is this picture of life, and you have life on the surface, and you have something a little bit deeper, and then you have the most deep place of all. And God desires to transform us to the very depths of our being. God desires to cleanse us deep down, and that's exactly what happens on the Day of Atonement. The priest would go into that place, and he would cleanse. He would cleanse. Let's read one more time this description, and maybe we can kind of follow along with it, right? He slaughters the goat for the sin offering for the people. He takes its blood behind the curtain, behind the curtain, to do with it as he did with the bull's blood. He sprinkles it on the atonement cover and in front of it. In this way, he makes atonement for the most holy place. That deepest place, it's cleansed. Because of the uncleanness of the rebellion of the Israelites, whatever their sins have been, he's cleaning the deepest parts. He used to do the same for the tent of meeting. So then he, he goes out to that tent, right? Uh, and he, he cleanses that as well with the blood of these goats and, and bulls. is do this for the tent of meeting, which is among them in the midst of their uncleanness, right? It's this time of deep, deep cleaning. And then finally, he makes his way out to that outer layer. He comes out to the altar that's before the Lord, and he makes atonement for it as well. And so he's going from the deepest inner place all the way out. This is the work that God does among his people. He wants to transform the deepest parts all the way back out. And that's what we see on the Day of Atonement. And so God wants to cleanse his people. That's what happens with one of the goats. What happens with the other goat? Well, let's keep reading. 
Leviticus 16, verse 20. When Aaron is finished making atonement for the most holy place, the tent of meeting, and the altar, he shall bring forward the live goat. This is the other goat. He is to lay both hands on the head of the live goat and confess over it all the wickedness and rebellion of the Israelites and all their sins and put them on the goat's head. And he shall send the goat away into the wilderness. In the care of someone appointed for the task, the goat will carry on itself all their sins to a remote place. And the man shall release it in the wilderness. And so the first goat was to cleanse the people. The second goat is the one that removes and carries their sins away. And so this picture that we have of God atoning his people is that he longs to cleanse his people and he longs to set them free. He wants to cleanse them and he wants them to be rid of all the oppressive powers of sin, all the corruption, all the ways that they have been torn apart. He wants them to be put back together. Uh, another image that I think is helpful for uh, this is if you get bit by a snake, you have to do two things. First, you have to suck out the venom. Otherwise, it's going to get into you and it's going to wreck you. You got to suck out the venom. And then you have to cleanse the wound. This is what God does on the Day of Atonement. He removes the poison of sin from the people and sends it on that one goat out into the wilderness. And then he cleanses and washes his people so they can live with him. This is who God is. This is what God wants for his people, for them to be cleansed and freed, transformed from the deepest parts out. This is the day of atonement. Now, all of this comes together in Jesus. All of this comes together in the person of Jesus. Jesus is the one who has atoned for us. He is the one who puts all things back together as they should be. He is the one who carries away our sins and cleanses us and gives us life so that we can live. We see this theme strewn throughout the Gospel of John. From the very beginning of the Gospel of John, you have John the Baptist uh, showing up. And, and at one point, Jesus begins to walk by. And it says, John saw Jesus coming toward him and said, Look, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. He didn't say the Lamb of God who's going to get punished instead of us, but rather the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Right? God is not a God who's about to snap and needs something to be appeased. God is a God who longs to heal his people and cleanse them and take away the sin. And so John the Baptist looks at Jesus and says, look, it's the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. 
And then uh, as, as we continue reading in the Gospel of John, uh, it's as he nears that night, that day, when atonement will be done, as he nears the cross. I love that John, uh, whenever he's gathering with his disciples, does not put the story that the other Gospels have about the Last Supper and, and the eating and the drinking. That's important. But what story does John tell instead? He tells us that Jesus gets down on the floor, puts on a towel, and washes his disciples' feet. Right? Just like the high priest on the Day of Atonement wore the clothes not of a religious ruler, but a servant, in order to cleanse the people of Israel. So Jesus gets down as a servant to literally cleanse his disciples. John is saying, this is Jesus. This is Jesus beginning to make atonement. He's beginning to cleanse his people. And he's doing so as a servant, as a humble servant. In the other writings of John, uh, the letter of 1 John, he will reiterate this. And he says to the people, if we walk in the light as he himself is in the light, we have fellowship with one another. And the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us, cleanses us from all sin. If we confess our sins, he who is faithful and just will forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. God is working to cleanse his people and free us so that we can be made new in him. And all of this is fulfilled in Jesus Christ. Now, the best commentary on all of this is the book of Hebrews. The whole book is basically a sermon on the Day of Atonement, especially chapters 7 through 10. If you really want to dig into it, then go read those chapters in light of the Day of Atonement, and you'll see exactly what he's saying. Um, the, the author of Hebrews uh, says, Jesus is our high priest. And he follows everything that has happened. He says, Jesus uh, has, has cleansed his people. But you know what? He didn't go into an earthly tent, the tabernacle. He has gone into the true tent, heaven itself, to make atonement for us. And Jesus, un unlike the, the other high priest, you know, who had to atone for his own sins first, Jesus was perfect. Jesus didn't have to atone for his own sins, but his perfect blood was able to make perfect restoration of his people. And then finally, you know, this feast or fast, rather, the Day of Atonement occurred every year. Year after year, this would happen, and it was an important moment in the life of Israel. But what the author of Hebrews says is that Jesus has done atonement once and for all, and he has sat down at the Father's side because his work is finished, which is what he says on the cross in the Gospel of John. It is finished. The work is done. Atonement has been made. God is cleansing and renewing his people. And so the question for us today is, do you feel like your life is falling apart 
We can only be put back together in Christ. Do you know someone whose life is falling apart? It is only in Christ that we can be made one again. God is cleansing and restoring his people. He is atoning for us because of his great love for us. He is drawing us unto himself. And so may we be a people who come to Jesus, ready to be cleansed by his blood, ready for sin to be removed, that we might be transformed and live as his people. May it be so. Amen.